Thank you, Will. Thank you, orchestra and singers, for leading us in worship of our Lord this morning. I really love that song by the Gettys that we just sang. Um, the words of that song remind us that we worship a God who has spoken to us, not, not a God that has remained remote and silent, but rather a, a God who spoke the world into creation. He is a God who who spoke through His living Word in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is a God who continues to speak by His Holy Spirit through His written Word. And, and here is the wonderful part of that for us for Christians. We are people who believe in and worship a God with whom we have a relationship. A God who knows us intimately. A God who, who knows us completely and who desires that we know Him as well. So as believers, we come together on a consistent and on a regular basis as we do this morning on the first day of the week on what we refer to as the Lord's Day. And we come together to open his holy book that is called the Bible and that we open it so that we might read it, so that we might study it, and that we might allow the Spirit of God to use it in our lives to, to renew our minds, to soften our hearts, but also to to help us in, in our, to become steadfast in our resolve to the truths that it contains. And so this morning, that is what we come to do today. We come to the Word of God to open it that it might speak to us, just as we have just sang about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the letter of 2 John. 2 John, we are going to be looking at verses 7 through 13 this morning, and Lord willing, we'll finish today up. Uh, in 2 John, and Lord willing, we will begin 3 John next week. Now, if you were with us last Sunday morning, you know we covered the first half of this uh, really brief epistle. We looked at the first six verses of 2 John last week. And in our study of 2 John last week, what we came to realize was that John went back and he returned to some of the details that he had uh, talked to us about in the first epistle. He returned to some of the same themes, themes like that of assurance, Themes like that of obedience and trust and love, all of that is contained there in the, the first six verses that John writes to us. And, and what we learned there was that John told us that those of us who have by faith received the, the grace that, that God offers us through His Son, that we have received salvation, that we have received eternal life, that we have received, as he describes there in verse 3, the grace and the mercy and the peace that comes as a result of what Christ has done. And if we were truly received that, we will not simply just believe that truth with our minds, but that it will saturate our lives. It will, it will make that, that trek from just up here in our cerebral parts of our minds, and it will go into the everyday activities that we do. It will affect the way we walk. It will affect the way that our hands move. It will affect the words that we speak because it becomes, it was something that abides in us. We abide in it, and it abides in us. And so what John talks about there is us walking in truth. But then we also learn that it, it's not just walking in truth, but it's walking in truth that's married with walking in love. There, there's, there's love that must accompany that, that truth in our lives. And, and when we love, as John has told us repeatedly throughout the book of 1 John, what he it centers upon is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to love one another just as Christ has loved us. So that's how the, 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 the letter of, of 2 John begins. That's really the, the introduction, really, is what we looked at last week. But beginning in verse 7, he switches gears. In fact, we get to the heart of the reason for why John felt compelled to write this letter 
to begin with. You see, John recognized evidently from what we're going to study this morning that something very sinister, something very dangerous was lurking right around the corner that would threaten this group of believers to whom he wrote. It, was, it would threaten their assurance. It would threaten their confidence. It would threaten their, their commitment to the truth. It would threaten the love and the fellowship that they shared with one another. Like a poison that if ingested will cause significant damage and potentially even death, John understands the threat facing this church to whom he writes as being just as dangerous as that. So what is that threat? What is the danger that so unnerved and, and unsettled the Apostle John? Well, let's read it this morning. Let's hear what he writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit to this congregation. Beginning in verse 7, he says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that, and I believe the better word here is you, look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses or goes ahead or runs ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it reveals. Thank you for what it shows us and what it alerts us to. Now I pray, Father, that we would be able to focus our attention Remove all the distractions that may have brought wind here with us so that we may be able to, to understand that which you desire to communicate to us through your living, active, breathing word. We pray this and we thank you for communicating to us in Christ's name. Amen. So, we're going to ask that question. What is that that was so dangerous and, and so ominous that it had John so upset? What had unnerved him and unsettled him so deeply that he felt compelled to write this letter? Well, what I want you to notice to begin with is what it was not. It was not a presidential election or politics of any kind that had unsettled him. It was not a natural disaster of some weather pattern that was threatening a large portion of, of a particular area that had got him upset. It was not a disease such as AIDS or cancer that had, had unsettled him so deeply within him. It was not some mosquito-borne virus that was coming that was potentially had grave danger such as a Zika virus. As, as sobering and as serious as all of those things are, and they are, and a hundred more like them are out there that are sobering and serious to us, John unveils a danger that is more malicious and sinister than all of those things combined. 
In this passage, John identifies the most dangerous thing that his readers faced in the first century. And brothers and sisters, let me say to you this morning, unequivocally, it is the most dangerous thing that we face in the 21st century as well. And it is this. It is the insidious danger of false teaching about Jesus Christ the Savior. That is the most dangerous thing in the world. How can I say that? Well, to begin with, let me just remind you of some of the things that other places that we learn in the Bible, things that were said. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Jesus warned that in later times, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Now, if that was not warning enough from the words of Jesus, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote. Apostle Paul actually didn't write this. It was, it was recorded by Luke in the, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and following, because there Paul is addressing the Ephesian church leaders. And when he tells them this, he says, there's going to be a time when I'm going to go away from you. And after that time takes place, notice the graphic image that he paints for these Ephesian leaders. He says, when I depart from you, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. No doubt Paul was attempting to communicate just how dangerous the times were and the, 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 the real significant danger that they were going to face when these false teachers and false prophets got to them. Listen to what Peter wrote about. Peter addressed the same issue in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, you see, when we just look at those, a brief summary of those passages, what we understand from those as well as other passages like them is that false teaching concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the most dangerous thing in the world because it deceives people into believing something other than the truth. And what inevitably results when someone believes something other than the truth as it pertains to Jesus and what he came to do, is that it inevitably results in death and destruction. As it pertains to salvation and to eternal life, for someone to believe anything other than the truth results in them being eternally separated from the God who made them. I think the words of Christ himself put the exceeding greatness of this danger into their proper perspective because he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't just worry about the things that can come into your life that take your physical life from you. Jesus says this, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, the greatest danger out there is not something that can only cause physical death, but rather it is that which causes eternal death and eternal separation from God in hell. So in light of this danger, I want you to notice how John describes the people, the false teachers who go and proclaim 
their false message. He calls them deceivers. It's an interesting word, actually, in the Greek. It's the word planos in Greek. It's the word from which we get our English word planet. And it literally describes someone who roams or who wanders. And specifically here, when he uses that word deceiver, or planos, what he's describing is one who has roamed or wandered away from the truth. The New Testament writer Jude picks up on that exact thing when he writes his letter. He describes false teachers as this way. He says, they are wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. But notice that John says they're not only deceivers, but they, are, they also are people who have gone out into the world. That's an interesting verb. As a matter of fact, that phrase is very interesting. It's ominous. It's, it's a very telling phrase. You see, the verb that John uses there implies that the, those who, are, who have wandered and roamed away from the truth, guess, guess where they had been? They had been among the believers. They had been together among the church and they had gone out into the world carrying their message with them. That really tells us exactly what John had told us back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He describes them there as also saying, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be manifest that none of them were of us. John tells us that the, the deceivers, the, the ones who had wandered from the truth, they wandered from the very fellowship that was bringing them together. They were seceders. They had gone away. Furthermore, what that phrase tells us is that having gone out from the church into the world, these false teachers were now on a mission. You might recall that Jesus Christ gave his own disciples the great commission that we talk about. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They were to go out into the world. Well, many have said that's, that's exactly what these false teachers had done as well. They had aped them by going out into the world to do the same thing. As a matter of fact, what we begin to understand is, is what John Stott writes. He says, perhaps the implication is that as the apostles were sent out into the world to preach the truth, so these false teachers had gone forth to teach lies as emissaries of the devil, the father of lies. In other words, they were using the same methodology as Christ's true disciples, same methodology going out in the world preaching and proclaiming the message, but they were proclaiming a, a false message. They were complaining, uh, proclaiming a completely different false and deceptive message. And how do we know that it was false and deceptive? Well, John gives us the test. He says here, he says, John tells us that the test to know whether or not the teaching concerning Jesus is true or not is whether it confesses or agrees with, because that's what the word confess means. Does it agree with the attestation that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Does it, does it agree with the fact that the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, the Messiah? Does their teaching attest and proclaim and believe that? Well, as we have noted in our previous studies in 1 John, the doctrine of the incarnation was already under attack in the first century world. Matter of fact, back in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we learned that many false prophets had gone out into the world denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. 
That actually was their message. He didn't truly come in the flesh. Scholars have examined this throughout the centuries, trying to figure out exactly what was the, the heresy that was being taught. And quite frankly, they come up with a number of different prospects of what it could have been. Some scholars claim that what took place there was that people were going out and saying Jesus really was a human. That he had a, he had a mirage for a body. He, his body was, he, it actually was not flesh, but it looked like a physical body. That's, that's one possibility that is, that is out there. Some propose, though, that the false teachers claim that while he did have a physical body, Jesus, the man, had the physical body. It was when, when the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him at his baptism that that's when God the Son actually came and, and inhabited him. It's a form of adoptionism. He adopted the physical body of Christ and lived inside of him for three years until he was crucified on the cross, after which point he left and went back to heaven. That's another heresy that potentially was being taught. Or there's a third heresy that was, could possibly be, and that is that they were proclaiming that Jesus really was God, but he only became God when he was born. There was a time when he, when, when he was not. They did not claim him to be the co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. All of those potentially could have been taught in that first century world, and the reason why we know it is because a lot of those same heresies continue to be taught today. And here's what you can know for sure. Whether it was either one of those or a multitude of those or a combination of those, here's what we know. They did not believe none of those views confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. None of them confess the orthodox teaching of the scriptures concerning the incarnation, which tells us that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, who in his incarnation is Jesus Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The apostolic testimony of the scriptures teach us that Christ took upon himself human nature, identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. And that he lived a perfect life of obedience to the law. And in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. Orthodox testimony tells us that he was raised on the third day, that he ascended to the Father's right hand, and that he now sits there exalted as the one mediator, fully God, fully man. And the only person through whom the reconciliation between God and man can be accomplished. That is what orthodox apostolic testimony concerning Jesus Christ teaches. And John summarizes all of that with this phrase when he says they must confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The false teachers who were coming, the false teachers who were proclaiming a false doctrine and deceiving many, they were proclaiming something different from that. They didn't believe those things. They did not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And as a result, that's why John calls them deceivers and antichrists. The reason that they are called antichrist is because they taught a message that opposed Christ. It was opposite of the orthodox message. As a consequence, can you imagine being labeled? Can you imagine any worse label being placed upon your life than being labeled a deceiver and antichrist? That actually leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning on your outline. The first point that I want you to see this morning is this. False prophets who deny the incarnation of Christ are doubly condemned because they deceive others and they oppose Christ. 
They deceive others. They, they lead them down the wrong road of destruction and they oppose Christ. The only way that that destruction could ever be taken care of. Now, having revealed the exceeding greatness of the danger that the church faced, notice what John says next. He issues them a warning in the form of a command. He says this, he says, look to yourselves. We might say this, watch out for yourselves. Watch yourselves, be on your guard. The nature of the danger was so great, so, so uh, insidious, that John says that his readers had to be constantly vigilant. They, didn't, they couldn't relax and just take it easy with regard to this specific issue. Why? Well, because false prophets and cults, listen, they often self-identify as Christian. No doubt these deceivers and these antichrists, they, they self-identified as Christians. As one author put it, it was not so much that they categorically denied the incarnation, but they did not acknowledge it. They, they produced a subtle counterfeit to the truth rather than outright contradicting it. Brothers and sisters, you and I must be on guard against such counterfeit beliefs today as well. There are those who go around today who to the casual observer will, will sound Christian. They will look Christian. They will talk about Christ with high regard and lofty terminology Upon closer examination, when you really examine what they proclaim and what they believe, you will find that they have a deficient view concerning the divinity or the humanity of Christ. Mark it down. False prophets and cults will inevitably attack and attempt to discredit the core and the fundamental belief that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. As a matter of fact, this week I came across a a help to me that I thought might be helpful to give you, to give you a way of being able to remember how it is that we are supposed to, as, as believers, do what John says, and that's look to ourselves or be on guard or watch out for ourselves. How can we identify how cults and false teachers pervert the truth concerning Jesus? Well, the way that this help that I came across this week put it is we can always remember this. They always engage in, in arithmetic. They always engage in, 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 in one of the four functions of math. They either they start by adding. They add to the God's Word. False teachers and, and cults typically always will begin by adding some new way of some new inspired vision and, that they receive from God that, that goes in addition to what the Scriptures reveal. Or, or they will tell you there's certain literature that you must read that will be necessary for you to be able to understand what God's Word is. So you need something external to the Bible to help you able to understand it. Or some even go so far as to even add further books to the Bible. New revelations that came at a later time. And those books are, are, are is just as valid and just as true as the Scriptures and must be read alongside them. Whatever the case may be, understand this. Cults and false teachers may still hold the Bible in high regard, but they do not say that it is sufficient in and of itself to lead one to a true knowledge of who Christ is, a true knowledge of who they are, and a true knowledge of how one can be saved. That's the first thing that you'll see. There's always adding that takes place, but then there's also subtracting. They subtract from God's Word. They subtract necessarily that, that, that some, as I mentioned earlier, they will subtract some aspect of Christ's nature. 
They will either proclaim that he was a wonderful teacher, but not, not really God. Or they will claim that he was God, but that he was a created God. Or they will even say something like he's sort of a hybrid between the two, not fully God. Whatever the case may be, they will not claim he is the co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father. They subtract from that. And that deficient view of Christ ultimately leads to a deficient view of the atonement, which ultimately results in false teachers multiplying the requirements of salvation. Orthodox Christianity recognizes that salvation comes only by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not of any good works of our own. But cults and false teachers will multiply the requirements by saying salvation comes by grace through faith in addition to works and other things that must be done besides faith. However, listen, any mixture of faith and good works as a means of salvation goes completely counter to what the gospel teaches. Finally, cults and false teachers divide. They divide loyalties by saying that one cannot be loyal to God without also being loyal to their particular group. In fact, oftentimes what you will find is that they teach that salvation that it can only come through a participation in their uh, group and their organization and being completely obedient to them and to their teachers. So in one form or fashion, false teachers and cults, they add, they subtract, they multiply, and they divide. And in doing so, they oppose Christ and they deceive many. And John wants his readers, and he warns them, that if they're not careful, and if they're not watchful, and they're taken in by such deception of these false teachers, they stood to lose what he and, and the other apostles had worked for. What we know from the New Testament is that John not only wrote and, and labored there in the area of Ephesus, but so did the apostle Paul, and so did Timothy. They labored there in that same area. And what John is saying, look, if you're taken in by this, this addition and subtraction and multiplication and division, and you buy into this, you stand to lose all that we've worked for on your behalf. Furthermore, he says that they may fail to receive their full reward. As I, Howard Marshall, has written, he says the Christian life leads in the end to a reward. And a failure to persevere in the truth and in right conduct can lead to loss of what God has promised to his people. But friends, if that's not bad enough, if that hadn't got our attention enough yet to tell us why this is so dangerous, look at what he says in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, whoever transgresses or whoever goes ahead, whoever runs ahead of things and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Can you see how dangerous this is? If, if in our, the idea is if we are not content to abide in the orthodox doctrine of Christ, but one goes ahead and seeks to become more advanced and more enlightened, and they run ahead and beyond the plain message of Scripture, such a one does, must recognize that, that when they do that, they reject the truth about Jesus Christ, and then they no longer have God, regardless of what they may claim. John's point, simply put, is this. Anyone who fails to have a proper understanding of Jesus Christ as revealed through the testimony of Scripture cannot have a relationship with God. If one denies Christ, they forfeit the Father. Again, is there any wonder 
that when we assess what John wrote here, that we come away recognizing that what false teachers teach concerning Christ is the most dangerous thing in the world? On the other hand, John affirms that abiding in the apostolic teaching concerning Christ, standing firm in what has been once for all delivered to the saints, is to, is to confess and it is to possess the Father. In other words, the antidote to the danger of false teaching is to remain steadfast and firm. It is to abide in the doctrine of Christ. And that leads me to the next point that I want you to see this morning on your outline. The next point is this. Believers must guard themselves against the perils of false doctrine by remaining firm in the apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ. We must guard ourselves by remaining firm. So, if as John has stated and I've summarized for you, if it is true that, that false prophets who deny the incarnation of Christ are doubly condemned because they deceive others and they oppose Christ, and, and, and if believers, who must, believers are those who must guard themselves against the perils of false doctrine by remaining firm in the apostolic teaching about Christ, then what John says then in verses 10 and 11 should be clear and self-evident to us. Because there he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, does not bring this doctrine of Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh, then do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. You see, the duty and the responsibility of Christians is clear and it's definite. We must not give any kind of practical encouragement or assistance to false teachers. Let me be clear about this, though. This command from John does not give us warrant to be rude or disrespectful toward another human being. It does not relinquish us from showing basic human compassion to others when needed. And we should also remember that in our desire to see lost men and women come to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we must be careful not to slam the door on our lines of communication with those who are lost. Nevertheless, as John tells us, we must recognize that there are boundaries and limits to how far we as believers who abide in the doctrine of Christ can go. Remember that John addresses this letter to the elect lady and her children. And as we noted last week, I believe that this is a metaphor likely used as an honorary title for the church. A small church with a, a small congregation, not a, a literal description of a, of a particular woman and her offspring. So what we realize then is that John is writing to this small congregation of believers and what he says to them is that they must not receive those who teach false doctrine into their house or give them a greeting. What exactly does that mean? Well, to get at what that means, I think we need to realize that in the first century world, churches didn't meet in buildings like this. They didn't have multiple services where they had four or five hundred in attendance between the two of them. They didn't, that was not what existed in those days. Rather, what you had is small cloisters of groups of people meeting in homes. And you had someone who may have had a home just slightly large enough so that he could have two or three or four families and maybe a few more that would meet there. And so consequently, some have taken what John breaks as an admonition here to mean that false teachers were not to be received into that home when the church was meeting together. 
In other words, the church was not to be a place where these false teachers were given an opportunity to teach their heretical views concerning Christ. And I would 100% agree with that assessment. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ must never be a place where cults and false teachers are given a place to espouse their heretical views concerning Jesus. However, I am not sure that John's admonition stops there. You see, missionaries, when they would go out and they would travel into various regions and new areas, they would go into these different places and they would go and they would search out and find a person of peace. They would look for someone who, who they could, could develop a relationship with and oftentimes they would stay with that person of peace in their homes and that person became their host and their home became their base from which that missionary could work and could operate. We see this happen again and again throughout the book of Acts. If you look at, at Paul's journeys and his missionary journeys, that was his M.O. He would go to a place and find a person of peace and stay in their home. And, and that's exactly what would take place. And when that would happen, that person of peace effectively began to vouch for the ministry and the message that would be proclaimed from that messenger, from that missionary. John was certainly familiar with that practice and no doubt he had benefited from it at various points in his own life and ministry. So consequently, I take what John says here not simply as that false teachers and cults should not be given a voice in the local church assembly. 100% I agree with that. But I also believe that John is saying that a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ must not in any way assist in the propagation of false and heretical teaching concerning Jesus Christ. And I take that stance because he goes on further and he says, when we find someone like that, we should not even give them a greeting. In other words, John says, don't even say God speed. Don't even say God bless you to them. Why would John say that? Because as he says in verse 11, he says, if you do, if you give them such a blessing or support them in any way in their efforts to promote their heresy, then you put yourself in the position of sharing with them in their evil deed of deceiving others and you set yourself at risk of giving an account before God the Father of helping spread untruths about His Son. Now some of you may be thinking, but what about love? John, John's the apostle of love. I mean, that's what he wrote about. What do we do about love? Didn't he say back in verse 5 that we're to love one another? Absolutely. Well, then how, Pastor, how does being inhospitable square with that command? Well, it squares with it in this way. Just as we studied last week, love that is divorced from truth is not really love. It's actually just mere worthless sentimentality. To intentionally aid or complicitly encourage false teaching concerning Christ that if accepted and believed, will condemn lost souls to eternal damnation. That is the antithesis of showing love. That's why false teaching is the most dangerous thing in the world. And it's also why the truth concerning Christ is the most important thing in the world that can be taught. That then leads me to the final point that I want you to see this morning. Third and final point on your outline today is this. The truth concerning Jesus is of such utmost importance that believers must not provide aid or hospitality to false teachers lest they contribute to keeping others in spiritual darkness. 
Brothers and sisters, this letter of 2 John is brief, but its focus is on what hangs in the balance when one accepts and believes the truth or the false teaching concerning Jesus Christ. And that tells us just how important it is for us to always teach and to always side with the truth. John has clearly and very succinctly made his point. And then in verses 12 and 13, notice he closes the letter by stating that he really would like to come see them. He's not going to continue writing anything else. He wants to come see them face to face so that their joy may be complete. And so John's obvious desire was that the church would reject the false teachers and would, that would come to them, but that when he came, he wanted them to accept him into their fold because John recognized this as we learned from the very beginning joy is only possible fellowship is only possible among believers when both the father and the son Jesus Christ are revered together as co-equal and co-eternal that's what 1 John 1 3 says when we have fellowship with the father and with his son Jesus Christ that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning which is this as believers, we must beware of the insidious danger of any teaching that denies Jesus' full divinity and full humanity. And we must not aid and abet those who proclaim such heresy. John is clear about the teachers who teach doctrine that strikes at the heart of Christian belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, as one stated it this way this week, in John's, with what John writes here, there could be no stronger condemnation of error and deceit in the realm of Christian doctrine. Friends, John's letter is not written to the church as a response to those who may differ on theological points of lesser importance. That's not what he's talking about here. What he rather is talking about is for instruction on how to respond to those who promote the erroneous doctrine concerning Christ. And I'll close this this morning. John Stott has written this. He says, if John's instructions to us seem harsh, it is perhaps because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of men's souls is greater than ours. And because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to the truth. Brothers and sisters, we are not to be mean-spirited and ugly people toward those who hold different views from us. But friends, we cannot back up and we cannot shut up as it, as it pertains to Jesus Christ being the only way in which we can be saved. We cannot ever give up the truth that God the Son came and took on flesh just as we heard sung about this morning left His throne in heaven so that He might take on flesh, that He might come and live a perfect, sinless, holy life, a life that we could never have lived, and that He did so in order to satisfy all of God's commands with regard to the law. And then He went to the cross and died on that cross in our place as sinners so that we might one day have faith in Him. And because of that faith, God rewards us with eternal life, looking at us in Christ's righteousness, not in our own righteousness. And friends, we cannot back up from that in any way, shape, or form, because when we do, we are then complicitly giving, giving credibility to those who teach something other than that. And anything other than that will lead someone to a lost and eternal that is why this is so important. 
And it is why we hold to the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.